You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at livethemessage.org. I want to share with you about worship this morning. This central aspect of who we are created to be as worshipers. And I want to liken worship to what we set our attention on, what we set our focus on, what we set our gaze on. That is worship. Worship is much more than singing songs. Let me be, be very clear. Actually, the word that we're going to, the Greek word that we're going to look at this morning from Romans chapter 1, later in Romans chapter 12, is this Greek word latreia, which literally means to minister or bring service to the Lord, specifically in the temple, so in the presence of God to bring service or minister to the Lord. And so obviously that can be done through worship and prayer and like lifting up our voice to the Lord. I think that's a very obvious way we can do that. But it's so much more than that. It is a very expression from the core of our being of love and adoration to the Lord. And so boldly I say, those that are this morning serving amongst our little ones downstairs in our kids, points, uh, kids point area, they are worshiping as well, as they minister as unto the Lord, as they, they serve these little ones in the presence of God. Obviously, we don't, we don't talk in terms of a temple being a building. We, as the body of Christ, are the temple. We have created this habitation for the presence of God to dwell in our midst. And so, whether we're singing songs or we're serving in some other way, we are all serving and worshiping the Lord. But the core issue of worship is where our attention is. Obviously, we can sing songs and our attention can be on Pizza Ranch after the service, you know, or we can be serving little ones and we can be frustrated or thinking about a a bazillion other things. Worship centrally is a core issue is about what our focus is on, what has our attention. And we were created to focus at one, uh, we were created to focus on one thing at a time. It's impossible to think, think about two different things at the same time. My, my daughters, my two oldest daughters have been lately crawling up on my lap, and my 10-year-old's getting a little big for that, but she's been crawling up on my lap, and she's been doing this cross-eyed thing with me, where she wants me then to do cross-eyes back with her. And, and, and I do it for a little while, but it starts to hurt my head, because we weren't created to look cross-eyed. We weren't created for our eyes to be contradicting each other like that. We are created to have a singular focus. And yes, there's things in the foreground, there's things in the background, but where is our attention? Where is our focus in this moment? And that is the core expression of worship, is where is our focus? What has our gaze? What are we looking at? So this morning, my prayer is that we look at Jesus alone, yes, as Savior of our souls, And we look at Jesus alone as the only one worthy of our worship, worthy of our full attention. Jesus said that very clearly in the Gospels. He said you can only have one master. You can't be cross-eyed. You can't be dual-focused. We're created. He put it in us to be able to focus on one thing at a time. He says in Matthew chapter 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. So now a lamp outwardly, that's, that's a different analogy he uses later, like you and I as children of God were meant to 
illuminate the world around us with the light of God. But in this analogy, he's talking about the lamp of God actually shining inwardly into the deepest recesses of our soul. The lamp, I mean, the the eye becomes this lamp to the inward parts of our heart. What we look at impacts us inwardly. He says, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in, in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either we will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And he specifically calls that out because in the teaching prior, he was talking about anxiety about material, material things. And so that's, that's definitely one thing that captures our attention more often than not, material things and money. But we can only have one focus. And so either we'll hate one thing and serve the other, or we'll be devoted to the other and despise the other thing. And that word hate, it it literally means to separate ourselves from those things. It's not so much that we're putting all this attention at like uh, creating this indignation and hate towards this thing. It's simply that we're separating ourselves from that thing so our heart begins to burn for the one thing that really matters. We're separating ourselves from this to love Jesus only. That's what we're created for. What we look at impacts our very being. It invades our body and our soul, what we set our gaze on, what we turn our attention to. So the core issue is worship. Worship speaks to our very reason for being, the very reason the Lord put us on the planet. And that's where I want to bring us this morning, the Lord's higher purposes in worship. The Lord is not in need of our worship. His validity, his authority will stand the test of time with with or without our worship. He is unmoved in that sense in terms of his validity and his holiness and his his majesty and his beauty with or without our worship. Worship is this grace-filled invitation for us to actually catch a glimpse of aspects of who he is and actually then begin to, to begin to reflect those aspects of his glory. And so at the core of worship is us coming into alignment with our purpose to actually reflect and host the very presence and glory of God. It's God's grace that we get to worship. Worship is the antidote for your empty soul. Worship is the antidote for our sin issues. Worship takes our eyes off of ourselves and points them to the only one who is worthy of love and adoration and worship. And the core issue of any sin, the full gamut of sins, the core issue is always selfishness. It's always self-serving. So, Worship then takes our eyes off ourselves and puts them on him. So worship is the antidote for our sin issues, turning our affection and our love towards him. We will get to Romans chapter 1, but first, um, there are two different groups of people on the earth. There are those that worship Jesus and those who worship anything else. It's a very broad broad uh, label or banner over a group of people, but that's the reality of it. That's how it'll all shake down. Those that are worshipers of Jesus and those that worship anything else, pick your poison. The book of Revelation actually 
calls unbelievers, those are not, that are not following Jesus, those that are not putting their trust in Jesus, the book of Revelation calls them earth dwellers. Those that have made their home on the earth. They have this earthbound vision, and that's it. Where Christ has called our, us to fix our gaze on heavenly things. For our gaze to be on heaven, our attention to be fully the king's. So we're not earth dwellers in that sense. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our eyes are fixed on the king. So there are these two groups of people, the earth dwellers, and these kingdom people whose eyes are fixed on the king. So worship for us is central because we see our king in the place of worship. We see his glory. And when we see his glory, we begin to reflect his glory. We come into alignment with what, we, with what we are created for. Let's look at Romans chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse um, 16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The good news of Jesus Christ is the power of God to save us, Yes, to save us from an eternal separation from God. Yes, to save us from the consequences of our sin. But on the most core central issue, to save us from ourselves. Because that's, the, that's the, the reason we act out in rebellion against God is to serve ourselves and to build a kingdom up for ourselves. So at the core of salvation, what the Lord is after is our hearts. Saving the very will and volition and, and hearts uh, that describe our being, that, that um, are the identifier of our very being. That's what the Lord is after, which then, yes, impacts our, the way we live, our behavior, which then impacts where we'll spend eternity. So salvation is a salvation from ourselves, from our sin, yes, from an eternity separated from God. But the Lord is, is doing a work of reorienting our hearts and our attention to be fixed fully on him, to worship him, for our eyes to be taken off of ourselves and to look upon the Lord. It says in verse 17, for in it, in that gospel message, the righteousness of God or the perfection of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the perfection of God is seen from faith. He says from faith for faith. That's a confusing phrase, but it's like from faith from beginning to end. It's all through faith that we actually see God and his perfection and his beauty. It's through faith. In the Bible later, actually in Romans chapter 10, it says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's why on a Sunday morning or anytime we gather in life groups, Sunday evenings, Wednesdays, my role or anybody that's speaking or proclaiming the goodness of God, our, our role is not to convince or arm twist people into seeing God clearly, seeing them for themselves. That's only, that's only through faith. Our, our job is to 
Proclaim the goodness of God, dependent on the Holy Spirit, anointed by Holy Spirit. And as ears are open to hear him clearly, hear the, 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 the wooing of the Holy Spirit, people begin to see Jesus. And their hearts come alive. And they actually begin to surrender themselves fully to the Lord. But that only happens through faith. My job is just to be dependent on the Lord. Let's keep reading verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the wrath of God, this revealing of, his, of the consequences of going against God, of essentially rejecting the manufacturer's handbook, like going against what we're designed to do when we do that, there's consequences. That is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not unpredictable, and that's what Paul is saying here. Some people misconstrue the wrath of God to think that they, they think of it like, a, like an earthly father who just flies off the, off the handle, like some sort of you know, rage monster. That's, that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying the wrath of God is actually revealed to all of humanity. Because we all see the damage that's done when we take things into our own hands. We serve our own selfish needs before the interests of others. When we do that, there's consequences. That is the wrath of God. Yes, there is an even greater wrath to come eternally. That will be the consequences of sin. But the wrath of God has been revealed to all mankind. It's evident to all of us. The creator God has made a way for human flourishing. And when you reject that, there's consequences. And it says, Paul says that when we then continue in unrighteousness, we're suppressing the truth. There is this, this numbing capacity to our own willful rebellion over time. Where it numbs us even more. And the things that we give ourselves, the cravings and the desires that we try to fill with these things that are self-serving, they never satisfy. They, come, they become this bottomless pit that eventually consume us. And that's what we'll see here later in this passage. Verse 19, it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul then begins to get into the, the real crux of it, of it here. The holistic nature of the, the inertia of worship. We begin to turn our focus on things, our heart, on other things other than the Lord, anything else, any other substitute for the Lord to fill that void that only he can fill. Our hearts begin to be darkened. Our minds begin to get twisted. And we begin to actually reflect the very things that we are worshiping. The real principle here is the exact opposite of what we'll see later is our purpose in the Lord to reflect his glory. We actually begin to 
stoop down to the very the bowels of hell and reflect the very things that we're giving ourselves to. He says we're all without excuse. We see the divine attributes of an eternal God all around us. And I believe that we all go to bed at night, every single person, knowing that someday we will live our lives or that we'll stand before a creator God who is holy and perfect in every way. I believe there's something deep within our, our human soul that recognizes that when we're all by ourselves and we're not posturing before other people or trying to put on a facade, we all know that there is this creator God of, of whom we will give account. But there's something in us that chooses selfishness. And the natural trajectory of selfishness is a downward spiral into futile thinking and our hearts be, be, becoming darkened and foolish. And we become so deprived that we pump ourselves up with this false sense of prideful wisdom. And this is Paul's first reference in this, the verse we just read. It's Paul's first reference to idols. But in this, you know, giving ourselves in worship to idols, he talks about the great exchange that happens in worship, inevitably. There's two groups of people. There's the, the earth dwellers, the ones who are, have an earthbound vision, those who have their eyes fixed on the king. And those who are earthbound will begin to reflect the things that they give themselves to in worship, the things that they're serving, the things that they're essentially ministering to. And likewise, when we give ourselves in worship to the Lord, we begin to reflect his very glory, his very image. This is why I believe worship is so critical. And what we've stepped into as a church family over the last couple of years, I believe has been the Lord's divine providence to realign us with his higher purposes. Worship for us is not about singing songs. It's not about, just about singing songs or some performance. The worship team, they're not performers. They're ministers to the Lord. They're making central Jesus as king. And something happens in this place that is actually aligning ourselves with the Lord's design for our lives, separating us from the temporal world for moments to see the heavenly, to see King Jesus. And I believe the Lord in these days is going to be restoring worship in the church. Worship, not, not just music, but true heart worship. And there's a huge difference. Tozer, A.W. Tozer said this, that actually no real union between the world and the church is possible. When the church joins up with the world, it is the true church no longer, but only a pitiful hybrid thing an object of smiling contempt to the world and an abomination to the Lord. That's why I believe worship is something the Lord is restoring in these days to align us and to set us apart from the world around us. Then we won't have to work so hard to convince people to come to church because the beauty of God will be here. People will just see him. They'll get touched by him. They'll be transformed by him and turned into his likeness. They'll begin to reflect him. Instead, you know, to Tozer says there's kind of like this kind of pitiful smile that the world will, will 
shine towards the church when we're mingled with the world. It's kind of like, oh, that's cute. And oftentimes that's the way the world treats the church because we're not actually hosting King Jesus in our midst. But when he becomes central, when he becomes the focal point, when he becomes exalted and all eyes are fixed on him, the world will be drawn in to encounter him for themselves. Let's continue to read in verse 24. It says, Therefore God gave them up in their lusts, or the lust of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The creator is blessed regardless of what we do. As I said before, his validity is not on trial by our worship service. His validity will stand, his authority will stand, and that's why Paul says, blessed be our creator forever, amen. But it's the goodness of the Lord, actually, that allows us to choose for ourselves, and here he gives us up to our own heart's desires. Please don't, don't misunderstand this. He's not saying that the Lord has given up on us. That's evidenced by him sending his very son to pursue us and to demonstrate his love for us. But instead, he gives us up to the, the hungers and the cravings of our own lusts and, and desires of our own heart. This is humbling. This is sobering. Those, that, that darkening in our hearts begins to actually be reflected in our bodies. This is why it's so holistic. Our hearts are expressed as they focus on something which impacts our thinking, which begins to impact our outward actions. Let's continue on. Verse 26, it says this. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Again, he didn't give up on them, but he, he gives them up to reap the consequences for our own actions. So to give, give them up to their dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So the trajectory, the downward spiral is this absolute rejection to the ways of God. Like this absolute like numbing of our hearts to the point that we've completely rebelled and turned against God. And he, he lists, and Paul does this a number of times. He, he does it elsewhere as well in 1 Timothy and elsewhere, where he, he lists all these sins. 
He's, he's giving a whole broad example of all these self-serving acts that all reap a certain consequence, that all then inherit very immediately the wrath of God. So there is this trajectory, this momentum of our lives as an expression of what we're looking at, of what we're turning our gaze towards, of what has our attention. And the Lord allows us to stumble and experience the pain and the consequences of what we're turning our attention to and what we're filling our lives with. It's like the father of the prodigal son where the, Lord, the father allows him to go and experience the pain of his decisions, of his rebellion against him. With a sense of remorse, a sense of brokenness, he releases his son. He's not going to hold him there beyond his own will. So he can realize the error of his ways. But the good news of Christ is that God has not given up on us. Time and time again, I'm confident that every single person has moments to see Jesus clearly, to see him for who he is. That's his goodness and his grace. Every single person on the planet I, I take God's word seriously when he says we are all without excuse. I believe every person on the planet has a moment like the prodigal son when they're there in, in, uh, feeding the pig slops and considering eating the pig slop where they come to their senses. And they have a moment to turn towards their king. I'm going to ask Scott to, to come to the keys The Lord is after our hearts to worship him in spirit and in truth. And I hope I've made clear, I'm not done yet, but I've, I hope I've made clear that there is no neutral ground in this life. There's no middle ground. We're choosing today who we're going to serve. We're choosing today who we're going to worship. Are we going to give ourselves to temporal things and allow that to be our main uh, have our main attention, our, the affection of our hearts, or are we going to give ourselves to King Jesus? Are we going to serve him? Are we going to love him? Is he going to have our full attention? So to summarize Romans 1, because we're going to turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12, but to summarize Romans chapter 1, our hearts turn towards something, like our, the gaze of our hearts turns towards something, anything other than King Jesus, other, anything other than our creator, which results in an action of worship with, with our body, with our, with our actions, with our behavior, which begins to impact our thinking, which results in being transformed into the likeness of that very thing. That is the, the pattern that we see in Romans chapter one, kind of the holistic sense of worship, being centrally an issue of what we turn our attention to, but how it begins to trickle down into our every aspect of our being until the point that we've stooped down to the level of reflecting what we've given our hearts to. So it's from Romans chapter one, we're not going to go through the entire book of Romans, but it's from Romans chapter one that that Paul lays out the beauty of the gospel for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like while we were in this place of a darkened heart and a futile mind and going our own ways against the ways of God, rejecting the manufacturer's handbook, that Christ died for us. 
He came for us, he pursued us, and that we are justified by his blood. That's what Romans chapter five says. Romans chapter six says that sin no longer has dominion over us because we are joined with Christ in his death. Romans chapter eight says that the Lord has called us according to his purpose, and that purpose is to conform us into the image of his son. That is God's destiny for your life. You wanna know what God's will is for, you, for your life? It's for you to look more like his son today. That's his will for your life. So that brings us to Romans chapter 12. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? Which is your spiritual worship. This is your spiritual act of service and ministry to the Lord, to throw down your bodies, your very physical being before the Lord as a living sacrifice. He says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by, the test, by, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we talked about what worship is, worshiping any, anything other than Christ. And here he lays out what it looks like to worship Christ and Christ alone, to worship our King, and the trajectory that flows out of that life of worship. That we will actually begin to be transformed into looking more like Jesus. As we turn our eyes to his mercy, towards his grace, we allow our bodies to actually come into alignment with, with what the decision we're making that day for our minds to begin to be renewed and transformed, for our hearts to come in alignment with the will of God for our lives. And what is the will of God? To look more like his son. This is what you were made for, to worship God. This is what you were made for. This is God's will for your life and for your eternal existence, to look upon him, to catch glimpses of his glory and to reflect those aspects of his beauty and his nature and his character. So in Christ, it's the very opposite. It's a similar pattern to the worship of anything else, but it's the very opposite trajectory in Christ. There is this all-consuming nature of worship in a similar but opposite way of sin. There is this all-consuming aspect of sin that it is this vortex, this black hole that sucks everything out of us, this bottomless pit. And in a similar way, worship is meant to be that. This unending vortex of God's love that envelops us from glory to glory. And we begin to see him, of which there is no end, and we begin to reflect him more and more. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. 
For more resources, visit us at livethemessage.org.